way of approaching our exegesis, which we call theological analysis. And I would like to go over that in terms of the results of it, but it up to verses 5 to 11. We have divided theological analysis into three main parts. The first is biblical theology. In other words, as we've mentioned and illustrated in the devotion today, uh, we can find parallel ideas in scripture from other passages uh, where the passages don't have the same vocabulary. So we're in a sense moving beyond word study to concept study uh, of theological truths. And it also gives me, uh, I really like to use other scripture to illumine a passage that I'm working with. So this just gives me another way to do that. We've done it with word study. Now we'll do it with what we call biblical theology theme. And here we have the use of our Greek New Testament. Uh, there a study Bible would do as well, but if you would take your Greek New Testament, if you have a hard copy or you share it with another, turn to Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11. I'm trying to remember, have we, have we talked about the uh, uh, reference text or text references uh, apparatus before? No, yes, no, Ethan, you think we may have a hold of it? Okay, well if you take a look at 2511, you will see at the bottom of the page there are three apparatus. The first is the textual critical, the wording of the text. The second is that discourse segmentation or punctuation apparatus. And the third is the, is the uh, parallel passages or reference. And you can go and look at those and you will find that they do provide some interesting parallels that can be of help. And I just ask you to identify two passages, talk about how they illumine the, the uh, passage. Now, if you turn back to the end, I think it's the end, maybe it's way at the end of the, no, it's way at the end. Yes. If you turn to the book of Revelation and go one page beyond the end of the book of Revelation, you will find an index to several indices. One index is to quotations. And you need it presented in two orders, which are quite handy. One order is an Old Testament order. If you want to know, if you are preaching from the Old Testament, you want to know where it's quoted in the New Testament, this Old Testament order can be quite handy or helpful for you. In fact, uh, a few years ago, I did a adult Sunday school lesson series on the gospel in Isaiah. And I didn't work through all of Isaiah, but just those passages in Isaiah that are used in the New Testament. So. I went to this section of the reference. You can see I have a lot to choose from, didn't I? You look under Isaiah, all the places where it is quoted. And then you'll notice the term New Testament order. 
Here, if you want to know what Old Testament passages are quoted in the New Testament in a particular book, that's what this order gives to you. One other ref, and then if you take a look at the final reference index of allusion, verbal parallels, when you think about the use of the Old Testament and the New, you can think about it on four levels. Quotation, allusion, idea, style. Quotation is when a writer consciously, often with an introductory formula like thus it is written, indicates that he's appealing to the Old Testament as an authority. An allusion is the use of Old Testament wording that probably comes from one passage. And therefore, the writer, and he uses enough of it that the writer, you know that the writers refer alluding back to that passage. For example, the phrase New Covenant only occurs in Jeremiah 31. So when you meet New Covenant, although you could say, well, that's an Old Testament idea, but since it only occurs in one passage, well be an Old Testament illusion, especially in the words of institution, this is the new covenant in my blood, as, as communion. And then uh, there is Old Testament idea, which we've been going at from the word study angle, and Old Testament style, which we really would go at from the rhetorical features angle. Uh, okay, so just as one example of a biblical theology, if you take a look back to Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11 in the Greek New Testament, you look down at verse number 7 being referred to the phrase, he emptied himself. Sometimes a phrase, you'll meet a Greek word dot, dot, dot. In other words, it says everything between those two words I'm, I'm working with. But here it's just two words right together. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is referred to. Well, in 2 Corinthians 8 9, you have the statement about our Lord. Remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. You go to that passage, you won't find Tapainao there. You won't find any of the vocabulary things too, but you didn't find the same idea. He made himself poverty stricken, being the image that is Okay, that I hope clears up the biblical theology. Systematic theology, let me talk about with you. Um, one, of the, one of the very interesting things about studying the scriptures is the way it's become such a specialization within the whole of the, of the theological disciplines. In other words, uh, when you study the scriptures, you just do it in terms of the scriptures. And you may, as a capstone for it, do biblical theology. But you very rarely think about systematic theology. Well, I think it's helpful to think about the systematic theology, basically for two reasons. Number one, systematic theology uh, embraces the whole history of doctrine, embraces a whole vocabulary of how to understand God's truth and appeals to scripture in order to support the, the truth in systematic theology. Good systematic theology should always grow out of exegesis. As we were mentioned about all theology is word study, I think. So when you come to preach a passage or teach a passage, 
I think it's good to bring systematics into your purview. The second reason is that systematics often crosses the bridge to today, and it should. It deals with contemporary theology, if you would, issues that are being raised, issues in the culture. So <coughs> understanding how systematics has used your passage will help you think about how is my passage connecting to people today, or may, should connect to today. So, for instance, in our, and so where do you go to get help with it? As I've mentioned before, I really like the, the uh, Erickson, uh, Millard Erickson volume on, on uh, Christian theology. I mean, admittedly, he is not uh, thoroughgoing reformed. If I want to find uh, a systematics in the reformed tradition, I would probably use, yes, I could go back to Burkhoff, use Robert Raymond. Um, more recently, and I haven't seen it, but I've heard positive things about it, Michael Horton out of Westminster West has produced a systematic theology. But, and of course we have, so Millard Erickson is helpful for the index, so I would not necessarily use him as my theology since he's more uh, broad-based um, than what I would want to look into that I certainly <coughs> benefit from. Uh, Wayne Grudem is the one that's currently used in your systematics courses. And as you look at its index, it's a selected index, selected. Only those passages that are dealt with extensively does he reference in his index. Thankfully, Philippians 2, 5, 11 is dealt with extensively. So he does refer to it as in pages 500 or so. And the good that you get out of looking, you can actually really go with Erickson and with Grudem. So I think Erickson at least maybe go to the library and Xerox out his index pages. <laughs> uh, because they can become the source of a commentary. They're really like a commentary for you. That you then can go and see, well of course, I guess you really should buy them if you're into doing his index. Um, you can then use it as a commentary to help you understand the passage. Um, so, for instance, here we looked at, um, and what I'm asking you to do is to identify from the systematics how is this passage supporting various departments of systematic theology. And for, it's a sort of a no-brainer, Philippians 2, 5, 11 supports what areas of Christology? The nature of Christ, his deity, his humanity. It also points to the incarnation. What else does it point to? The work of Christ in terms of his death and also his exaltation. So you have a number of areas of theology that it speaks to that you keep in mind as you, as you work through. The final area of, the, of the theological analysis was the issue of a theological or interpretational problem. Here, as you work through, what I ask you to do uh, was to think about this phrase, he emptied himself, and identify the problem that is present, the types of solutions with argument, and then finally your preferred solution. 
and then rate that solution according to, with some reasons, according to whether you're certain, probable, uncertain, don't know, possible. So for example, the statement, he emptied himself, people have started asking, of what did Jesus empty himself? That's not really said. This is a, and the answers are sometimes given, the kenosis theory, which I don't think is really, it really was in vogue in the 19th century, as Grudem describes it in, on the continent in England. I'm not sure that it is much uh, held to today. Uh, said, well, he gave up the form of God. He did set aside divine attributes when he became man. Uh, and then the, the, the more metaphorical understanding would be uh, he poured out himself totally at the disposal of people. Um, and this suits the exhortation to humility. Or another metaphorical understanding would be he made himself powerless, accepting the vocation of humiliation, uh, of incarnation and crucifixion. It's explained, uh, he emptied himself and explained by taking the form of a servant. All other uses are meta metaphorical in, in the New Testament, the uses of the idea of empty. So I propose uh, number three as my solution, especially with the participles that are there as Jesus moves in his humiliation. The, the, I know I've done this very briefly, but does that give you the idea of the pattern of thought I'd like you to work through? Yes, So you're not, I, I, I understood as if like you wanted what the commentators say about mistakes are just quoted what, like O'Brien or Yes, 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 you can, what I want you to do is use the use. Um, let me back up a moment. Sometimes, when people do exegesis, they and I find this especially in the Dallas Seminary uh, book on exegesis. They really major on what they call interpretational problems or interpretation. And what they do is look at a text and find out all the options for what the text could mean from this or that angle. That is different ways of interpreting or saying the meaning of the text. I have you do that, but from a different angle. I have you do it by asking various questions of the text. But as a kind of mop-up, I bring you to a point where I say, OK, let's choose at least one issue that's key to this text where there's differences of opinion as to what the text means. And let's solve that problem. And it can be a model for how I could do it many times as I look at the text. So look, what you do in going to the commentators is seeking to find, do they have, do they have different answers to this <coughs> same question? And if they do, what are those answers or proposed solutions? And what are their reasons? What is their evidence and argument for why they choose one over another option? Actually, what O'Brien does, he's very thorough. I think he may have about five or six options for taking the form of a servant related to, to the matter of emptying oneself. And you certainly can look into that, though it went a little bit beyond just emptying yourself because it dealt with the servant. 
Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So you were not wrong in going to commentators. That's where you have to go. Okay. Because you're finding other interpretations. Are we okay on theological analysis? All right. Let's go on to synthesis then. I will uh, go ahead over and pick up another area to think about. Um, as we pursue the our method that, that we are thinking through has started large with survey. In analysis, started again large with history. Thought about the background of the writing of the whole book, thought about historical cultural matters. Then it hunkered down on the text itself with the literary analysis, and which involved grammar and rhetorical and word study. And then it started to, still was there with the theological analysis, but then started to think a little bit broader with biblical theology, with systematics. Now we are at the place where we're going to start, but we've been always doing analysis, always taking stuff apart. We've got the engine out there on the lawn, and it's all taken apart. Now we've got to put the engine back together again, the shade tree mechanics that we are. And that's where we face synthesis. Synthesis is getting our arms around the passage as a whole and relating it to the book and to scripture. How we're going to do, and it's like, and then we, it will lead us from there to interpretation application where we walk across a bridge from the passage to today. How are we going to relate the passage to today? And then beyond that, to the next bridge, how are we going to communicate it to today? Homiletics or teaching. You know, oftentimes exegesis just stops at maybe synthesis and doesn't go beyond that necessarily. Uh, I think we, I think because of the nature of scripture, you've got to go beyond it. Unless you've thought about application, you really haven't dealt with scripture according to its purpose. Second Timothy. 15 to 17 is to be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the, that the person of God may be adequate, competent, thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's application. You can't get away. You should get away from it. You can't get away from it. Well, how do we begin to put it together? Synthesis. Exegetical outlines and perspectives on synthesis. I've talked about his place in the exegetical process. I don't know what's happening here. I'll go back to it and try it again. Um, process of human cognition, practical benefits. Okay, I've talked about that hourglass area. Survey, analysis, synthesis, interpretation, application. Cognitive, human cognition. This is a little fact to tuck into the back of your mind, both as a student and as a communicator of God's word. Your best time for synthesis is when you're asleep. In other words, 
people say that moving from short-term memory, which is when you have all the bits and pieces, that's the left side of your brain, to long-term memory is where you have the blick, the, where it's put together, the gestalt, the form of it is, is present. Uh, transfers to your right brain. I always think the left hand, right brain is the more creative. Um, the right hand, left brain is the more is the analytical. And that transfer, when you see things whole, best takes place overnight. So I would recommend, if at all possible, um, have a night separate study from the forming of the sermon or outline that you're going to present. In other words, there was a friend of my father's uh, who he went to seminary with, actually grew up with in Philadelphia. He was a pastor of a church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, First Presbyterian Church. And he used to have the practice of getting up at like 3 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning and doing all of his sermon study and getting a sermon. And you know, I just, and you're looking at it, and I just, whenever I heard that, I said, how can that really work? You need time to process, to uh, let things settle in that you think, think about. Now, the opposite of that is, I've heard of, I think it was Jay Adams, uh, who was at Westminster Seminary for many years. He had a sermon method in which he said, you should write your sermon a year ahead of the time to when you're going to preach it. And then all during that year, you'll, be, you'll get sermon illustrations, and you'll be reminded, et cetera, et cetera. When you come up to preach it, uh, it it'll be well uh, in scouts. You're all smiling at that, but that's the other extreme. Well, synthesis, analytical to intuitive, let a night pass. And then, of course, there is great benefit to seeing things whole, being able to state in one sentence what the purpose of a passage is, being able to present an outline. I'm, I really am very big on outlining. Why? Because it's simply ordering, represented, representing in an ordered way the ordered thought of the writer in such a way that it can be remembered by those who hear it, and also it's so key to expounding the text, that, that your passage, that your work is really coming out of the text. So how do we do an exegetical outline? We've already done a mechanical layout, but that mechanical layout has basically taken the, the passage apart and has talked about various relationships. Now, I think it's very important for us to put the passage back together again. Again, getting the help of the mechanical layout. For example, I have for you, um, let me just point out two, I'm going to give you two handouts here. Let me go to a final one. This happens to be on one page, the mechanical layout of Philippians 1, 3 to 11. It says 7. Seven there. Um, and then the other thing I want to give to you is um, now, th now this you this can serve as a key for the work that you 
you are doing, but I give it to you, I'm going to illustrate from it. This is an exegetical outline of Philippians 2, 5 to 11. So don't let it short circuit your own study, uh, but it's there for you to refer to, especially when you move from it to homiletical. What do we do when we outline? We basically chunk a passage. We can find a name for each chunk, a title, not just a paraphrase, but a title for a section. And what we need to be alerted to in mechanical layout, or not mechanical layout, outline, is the following. Skating here fast. Uh, there are, and I handed this out to you last week, there are certain levels of, of chunks of the book. I have identified them for you as follows. Section, type. In your Greek New Testament, you will have sections of a book present with a title. Sometimes that section will only be one paragraph, but it will, so it will be both a paragraph and a section. Other times there will be more than one paragraph. You need to let those, those things work for you as you develop an outline. Section, paragraph, and, and you know what a paragraph is, I'm going to assume that's where you indent, uh, start with an indentation. Now the next level, which is probably the most challenging, one of the challenging ones to grab a hold of, is what I would call the subparagraph or sentence cluster. Within a paragraph, you have certain sentences that go together, and, and there's a separation. You're always trying to ask what goes together, what what's separate. Then, below that, you have sentence, or sometimes even sentences that can be clustered together. You have clauses, and even down to subclauses or phrases. And you, you can do, you can outline in great detail, because God's word is so full, so rich, so fortifying, I would say. So, identify the thought unit, name the thought unit, place it in an outline. For example, what we're working with, if you take Philippians 3, 1 to, 3, 1, 3 to 11, it's part of a, of a paragraph in an opening, and it seems to involve a thanksgiving and a prayer that really creates some sentence. For some reason, I cannot use my crazy. Uh, if you take a look at Philippians, you might want to have the Greek text out. If you Philippians 3, 1 to 11, you look at verses 1 to 8, they are a thanksgiving. Verses 9 to 11 is a prayer. So in outlining, those are two, two areas you're going to separate out. Now, within the thanksgiving, which is verses 3 to 8, you can further divide things into sentence clusters. Um, you can go and look at verses 3 to 6, 
which have these three causal statements of why he gives thanks for them, because of their remembrance of him, because of uh, their fellowship in the gospel, because he's confident God's going to complete a work. But then in verse number seven, or yes, verse number seven, so three to six is one cluster, seven and eight is another cluster of sentences, or sentences in the plural, uh, where he talks about his affection, just as it's right for me to think this way about you. So I would probably divide the thanksgiving into these two areas to, to think about. Is this making sense? Uh, then you could even go to the subclause level, and I'm just driving myself nuts here for not being able to turn on my crazy little marker. But if you look at Epi here, forever because of every remember your every remembrance, because of your fellowship in the gospel, because of being confident of God's work. Those are three sub-areas within verses 3 to 6 that you could then go ahead and, and define. Because they remember, because of the fellowship, because of the confidence in God's work. Now, are you seeing how this is making a way for teaching pretty immediately? You could take this and teach it pretty directly. And it's also going to make a way for preaching as well. In fact, that's probably what I should do at this point. And then I'm going to make a comment about the other part of synthesis. Um, thanks to, to uh, you all for getting these things out. Here is uh, a sermon outline set right next to an exegetical method for chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. A sermon outline can vary in the order in which it uses the content of the text. So you don't necessarily go directly, as you will see, from a sermon outline to a, uh, excuse me, from an exegetical outline to a sermon outline. Uh, let me just show you, let me show you the end from the beginning here, and then I'm going to come back and pick up the rest of synthesis, and then word about interpretation after. If I were going to work on this sermon, framing it, um, I would do it like this. I'd choose a keyword method. I would choose the subject being the church. And you I would choose a theme, an aspect of the church, as relationships within the church. Chapter 1, verse 3 to 11. Uh, my proposition would be every church can experience spiritual, healthy relationships. So it's an ability sermon. And my key word is going to be practices. So it's going to be, um, it'll be, how can every church experience spiritually helpful relationships by pursuing by pursuing the practices of Paul and the Philippians in their church life 
every church can know spiritual healthy relationships. Okay? That then gets us to working from the mechanical layout to the um, outline, exegetical outline we've talked about. Um, how do we get to the sermon? We've framed it up. Here's the transitional sentence by following Paul's practices. Every church can experience, forgive me for not saying it in good Hamiltonian form. Uh, <laughs> as we take a look at the exegetical outline, we then can move to the homiletical outline by saying, okay, the two practices are thanksgiving and prayer. And then underneath thanksgiving, we have three reasons why Paul is thankful for it. And in that way, develop the thanksgiving. Okay? Do you see where we're headed then? In working with our outline that can move to sermon. Now there's one other area I need to overview for you, and thank you for your good attention. Um, and that is what I call biblical coherence. This area, and then I may give a lick and a promise to advocate for interpretation application. Um, in seeing things whole, the first area is to take a look at our passage and say, could I put the message of this passage into one sentence? It may end up being a long sentence, but can I comprehensively, but in a focused way, describe what's going on in my passage? And then, in order to validate that, and also to make sure I'm relating it to the book as a whole, how does this passage actually promote the purpose of my book? Um, in other words, a check to make sure that what I think is the, is the passage's message really fits into what Paul's about in the book of Philippians. And then we have place in salvation history. So you will find in the, we're, we're working on three levels. And let me, uh, you understand the first two levels, I believe, all right. You can see evidences of that in scripture. I really need to talk about the salvation history level. This is the one that's been, been the greatest challenge for students for some reason. I don't know why. Um, <clears throat> I want you to write down a, a, the following. Uh, I don't have it in, in the book in the same way as I'm going to give it to you. Take the, this, is, this is a basic outline of redemptive history. And I want you to create two columns. The first column will be the stages of redemptive history. The second column is going to be the progress of revelation, the books of the Bible that support and tell us about that stage. Uh, this is a very simple outline, but I think will uh, we'll, we'll match what we have in the book. Stages of redemptive history, that's progress of redemption, progress of revelation. Under stage of redemptive history, write creation. Obviously, that's Genesis 1 to 3, goes in, or 1 and 2, let's say, goes into that particular area of progress of revelation. Fall is second stage. Genesis 3. 
promise stage that's going to be divided into two parts. Salvation accomplished, salvation applied. So promise stage of redemptive history for salvation accomplished and salvation applied. Here you write down Genesis 4 to Malachi 4, the whole rest of the Old Testament. Now we get to the fulfillment stage. And under that, you write salvation accomplished. And you put over on the other side, of course, for fulfillment stage, you could have put, put the whole of, uh, of uh, Matthew to Revelation. It's all of the New Testament. But for the salvation accomplished part of it, you put Matthew through John, the Gospels. That's where <coughs> God's work in Christ is presented. Then you put salvation applied under fulfillment stage. And you write Acts to Jude for progress of revelation. And then finally you write the word consummation. Consummation. And obviously you write revelation. So Creation, fall, promise stage of salvation accomplished and applied, fulfillment stage of salvation accomplished and applied, consummation. Does that make sense? I know it's very simple, but that's okay. You'll find a more detailed outline in the book. And what we were asking you to do is to do basically two things. And I realize I'm not at the cusp of time. The first is, we'd like you, in essence, to read the Bible backwards. There I go again. I'm always giving you something to do backwards. <laughs> what I mean by that is, if you were to take, and I'm not sure how this shows up here. Let me just see. So for example, here is my creation fall, uh, salvation promised, uh, <coughs> salvation accomplished applied promised, salvation Fulfillment, salvation accomplished, and applied consummation. And here's my progress of revelation, where you have the law, the prophets, the uh, wisdom literature, the gospels, acts, the epistles. Um, the first thing you do is, I guess I have to go on beyond uh, this. You will find uh, in the book three pages in which this is given in more detail. You start with Philippians right here and read backwards and ask yourself, how has Philippians been prepared for in the progress of redemption? It's described as a book that will encourage the church in true knowledge which is part of salvation applied living out the promise among the Gentiles, which itself is, is a fulfillment of what God promised in the Old Testament of a people for his name, but actually from among the nations. Do you see what I mean by reading backwards? 
thinking in redemptive historical context. Um, and you can even go further and ask that about your particular passage. Like my passage, Philippians 1, was dealing with, with, uh, <clears throat> with love and affection and thankfulness within the people of God. So you can go back to the Old Testament and find uh, things in the Psalms or in the wisdom literature or in the law that deal with harmony in, among God's people thus prepares for our particular past. Now there's one other thing I want you to ask as you go into this area, and then just one last sentence on interpretation application. Walter Kaiser, a number of years ago, I learned from him just in his writings, has talked about the fact that passages in the Bible are either foundational or developmental or both. What he means by foundational is certain passages in the Bible are benchmarks that other passages keep referring back to. For example, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us in 1 Corinthians tells us that gives us a benchmark passage, namely the Passover of Exodus 12 and 13, etc. It's foundational. And if I were to take actually we could could do it this way if I were to take what well, I was talking about new yeah I'll take Exodus 12 and 13 or even Exodus 24 love of the covenant I then said okay where is that developed in the New Testament I could go to Luke chapter 22 verses 19 and 20 Jesus at the last supper table this is the new covenant in my blood but then I could further go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, this is the new covenant in my blood. I've, and then what happens is some passages become both developmental and foundational at the same time. They both build on what was before, and they themselves are built upon by other revelation. So I want you to ask that question of Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11. Is this a foundational or a de developmental passage? Can you uh, or both? Can you find prior revelation that it builds on? Can you find subsequent revelation that builds on it? Okay. Then finally, and I, it does need to be finally, uh, interpretation application. Uh, this you meet if you've had understanding closer and world views. You know this already. I will just point it to you here. Um, basically, I want you to note three, two things, two large things. The Bible, I believe, relates to culture in one of three ways. A positive way, which I call communication, by analogy. Often it's a matter of illustrations that where things link up. Correction is what we're very good at. We see the Bible judging culture. And indeed, the Bible challenges God. And then thirdly, capture the significance means capture the significance of the good news, of the gospel for the culture. What in this passage is really good news for people as, not for Christians, but for non-Christians, for people as they live, you can do Christians, but I really like you to focus on non-Christians, people in the culture. Uh, what is, how is this passage good news for them? And as you think in these three large areas, 
I want you to think of them in this crosshatch method of what's the biblical mandate or principle? What's the biblical truth that I'm going to apply here? What's the contemporary situation to which it applies? And what's the implementation? How is it? To, what change in thought, behavior, attitude am I after if I take this passage and apply it to this situation? Okay, I'd like you to do that for Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Thank you very much. We'll uh, get, not next week, but the week after.